Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Up first today, Memorial Day is just around the corner, and while a lot of us are working to figure out how to adapt our annual cookouts to something a little simpler for pandemic life, the holiday also marks the start of presidential campaigns seriously planning their electoral college strategies ahead of November. And according to our next guest, who knows a thing or two about presidential politics, even though the Rust Belt states handed Trump the presidency back in 2016, the path for a Biden win may be something entirely different due to a political realignment that started back in the early 1990s and was completed during Trump's first term. Here to explain exactly what's happening in this moment and why it matters is Doug Sosnick. He was the White House political director under the Clinton administration. He recently wrote a piece for Axios laying out his thoughts on where things stand ahead of this November election. Doug, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me as a guest. Yeah. So some of what you talk about in your piece, uh, we have seen unfolding, as you say, over uh, over the last couple of decades. We've seen states that had been pretty reliably Republican for a very long time, inching over into the Democratic column. And we've seen other states that had been Democratic strongholds for a long time start to to move the other way. Uh, Explain what is happening with the political realignment that you are talking about in this piece and why it's going to matter in 2020. Well, we have been going through a political realignment. It probably started in the early 1990s with Pat Buchanan's campaign and and accelerated in the next decade uh, with the, I would say, Sarah Palin's being on the Republican ticket. Uh, and the culmination of that was uh, Donald Trump's uh, election as president uh, in terms of uh, this hardening. And it really uh, went to another level in terms of completing the realignment during the first three years of the Trump administration. And so in, in our new American politics, there are four characteristics that if you know about a person, you have a pretty good idea of which party they're, they're, they're in and how they're going to vote. It's their age, age uh, race. Uh, gender and education. So younger voters are increasingly democratic. Um, for uh, non-white voters, which are the over 50% of births in our country now are non-white, so that's the emerging group of de- demographically. Um, for women voters, there's always been a bit of a gender gap, but that's been particularly pronounced now uh, uh, with educated women in particular that have abandoned the Republican Party in droves. Uh, since Trump's election, that contributed to uh, Democrats having a, a very, very good year in 2018. And Michigan, of course, is a good example of that, with two members of Congress uh, being elected from Democratic uh, members elected from Republican seats, as well as a, a new Democratic governor. Um, uh, and lastly, education, which is increasingly becoming the most important driver, as the Democratic Party now uh, tends to be um, supporters tend to be more educated, and the, and the Trump supporters um, tend to have less education. That was a group that in the past had been uh, more democratic, and so that realignment now is driving the politics in our country. And so you get states in the South and the Southwest and the West, which have the characteristics of a Democratic supporter, which is the high percentage of non-whites. 
uh, high percentage of educated voters, particularly in suburban areas, uh, and, and younger voters. So you've got these, these demographic factors now that are really increasingly determining how people vote. And so you take uh, the Rust Belt in particular, those states uh, tend to have older voters, higher percentage of white voters, higher percentage of voters with uh, less than college education. And so those states are evolving more towards supporting Republicans uh, uh, for president because of those demographics. Mm. Uh, so I, I had a conversation. I've been having conversations about this with with lots of people uh, over the last couple of of months, and I want to I want to talk specifically about the some of the maps that you've drawn and some of the scenarios that that you lay out that suggest uh, that Democrats to win won't be relying on some of the states that they have relied on for a, a, a really long time. Uh, in one, uh, you have Joe Biden winning Michigan and Pennsylvania and Illinois and Minnesota in the Midwest, but losing Ohio, Indiana, and Wisconsin, but picking up Arizona, uh, which is a state that Democrats haven't won for for forever. Um, talk about that scenario. I had a conversation with someone who talked about um, how four years ago in 2016, um, Hillary Clinton could have won the election by winning Florida and Arizona and still losing all the states that she did uh, in the Midwest. And that's important because of the demographics of those states. In this map that you're drawing, you you say that Arizona is one of the states that Democrats could uh, could pick up. Tell me why. Well, that's right. I mean, I think, so the, the conventional wisdom in 2016, which I think sometimes the conventional wisdom is true, and I think it was in 16, the conventional wisdom in 16 was that Trump was elected president because he carried Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And the conventional wisdom for 2020 is in order for Biden to win, he has to carry the same states that, Clinton did in 16, which I think he will, but he also needs to carry these three Rust Belt states in order to win. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I don't think, I think it'd be very difficult for Biden to get elected president if he doesn't carry Michigan. And I think probably he needs to carry Pennsylvania. Uh, and Trump, of course, I think can get reelected if he doesn't uh, win Michigan. Um, but to, to the, the the key here, I think, is is that for Biden to win, his best path is to win Michigan, is to win Pennsylvania. But I think the third state where he has a better chance of winning uh, uh, from Wisconsin would be Arizona. And so while there are five different scenarios where Biden can win, um, one of which is to carry the three Rust Belt states, I think probably uh, the best chance is, is a Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Arizona victory um, uh, and that's entirely due to the demographics of Arizona increasingly favoring Democrats, while the demographics in Wisconsin are increasingly favoring Republicans. Hmm. And so what what is it about Arizona, which I think most people know politically because of John McCain, who was uh, the longtime senator there who, who, who died recently. Uh, they don't know much else about that state, though. Tell us what's going on there uh, that, that makes it more likely to be a Democratic state. So to be clear on Arizona, while it's, it's traditionally been a, a Republican state, 
Uh, going back to the days of Barry Goldwater and including, as you mentioned, John McCain, there was always kind of an independent Republican libertarian streak almost to Republicans in Arizona, which are different than Republicans in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but what's been going on in Arizona is enormous influx of new people moving to the state. It had, Arizona had the highest population increase uh, in this past decade of any state in terms of population growth. Um, people are leaving in droves California because of how expensive it is to live there. Arizona now is the second uh, the state that has the second most people from California migrating there to Texas is the, is the most. Hmm. And so what increasingly you're seeing happen are the people that are moving to Arizona or that are there and have it giving birth um, are increasingly uh, uh, non-white, uh, higher education levels, uh, and younger. And again, those are the profiles of, um, of, of people who are voting as much, I'd say, against Republicans as, as for Democrats. And so in, in 2018, a Democrat was elected to the United States in Arizona for the first time in 30 years. And that's reflecting um, these changes. And I think, I think in the case of, of Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and North Carolina, and Florida, unless something radically changes, I don't think there's any question that by the end of this decade, all of those states are going to become Democratic. I think the question, though, is, the timely question as regards to 2020 is, is that going to happen this year or is it going to take longer into the decade? And in the last couple of years, Virginia has gone from a red state to a purple state to now it is firmly a blue state. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I think it's unlikely that that uh, Florida, Georgia, Texas, North Carolina are going to become blue states this year. Uh, I think it's it's quite possible Arizona will, will, hit, will hit a tipping point this year where it becomes Democrat. But there's no question that, you know, certainly I think by 2024, several of those states will be voting Democratic. Yeah. Uh, uh, lending some real foundation to the things that you're saying about Arizona is literally just out on the Hill as a new poll that shows uh, Joe Biden leading Donald Trump by seven points in Arizona. It's a Ohio predictive uh, insights uh, survey. Um, Also, every poll on 538.com since March 16th shows Biden beating Trump in Arizona. And we should note that some of those are within the margin of error. But there is uh, something going on in that state that uh, that suggests change. Uh, This is Detroit Today. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. I was just going to say that's true. I just for your listeners, I just want to make an admonition because polling uh, people – I think misinterpreted what happened in 2016. The polls were accurate in 2016, the national polls. It predicted the outcome. What the polls did not do in 2016 was look at the states that were going to decide the election. And so my admonition to your listeners are that generally Trump does better than in a, in a better position than what the national polls suggest, because only a handful of states are going to determine the outcome of this election. Michigan is one of them. And the other is, is that when you, he does better in those states generally than he does nationally. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is most polls are registered voter polls. And Trump generally does better amongst likely voters than registered voters. And so I think that while it's absolutely true that Biden is ahead in most every poll, the national polls, and Trump is a little bit behind, but the polling, I think, underestimates Trump's strength in getting, re-elect- getting reelected 
it's really only a handful of states that matter, and it's only about the people who are going to vote that matter. Not who are going to show up. That's right. Yeah. 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 And that was, that was, of course, what happened here in Michigan in 2016 is we had about 20,000 people who had voted in Detroit in 2008 and 2012 who did not show up for the 2016 uh, election and and presumably those would have been democratic votes that would have put this state into into the the Clinton column and and it didn't it didn't happen. Uh, this You're is absolutely right, and, and that combined with one other factor contributed to Trump winning, and that was the third, fourth, and fifth party votes that most of which would have gone to Clinton, um, but but the, they didn't vote for Clinton, and so a combination of as you mentioned the the, the downturn in turnout. Um, that compared to Obama, plus these third, fourth, and fifth party uh, votes, that's why Clinton lost the state. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Doug Sosnick. He's, uh, he was the White House political director during President Clinton's successful re-election race. Uh, he's written a piece in Axios that talks about what the electoral map might look like this November, as Donald Trump stands for re-election and former president, Vice President Joe Biden uh, tries to unseat him. Uh, Doug is talking about the differences that we might see in sort of traditional voting for states like Arizona or Michigan, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, all of these states where demographics are changing very quickly and that at some point uh, that should reflect in uh, electoral outcomes. We want to hear from you as well. Tell us how things have changed for you since 2016. Has your view of local or national politics evolved or altogether changed? Are you planning to vote no matter what in November, even if it means standing in longer lines uh, to try to get or trying to get a mail-in ballot due to coronavirus uh, concerns? Tell us what your biggest priority is when you're voting this, this November. Also, we really want to hear from folks who cast their ballots for President Trump in 2016 here in the state of Michigan. What are you thinking about in 2020? Are you are you still uh, allied with the president and his agenda and his record? Uh, or are you having second thoughts and do you feel like uh, like Joe Biden should uh, should be the president that that uh, Democrats should uh, have control of? The White House. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Doug, before we get to, to listeners, I want to talk about another map that, that you uh, are sharing uh, via Axios. In this one, you have... Uh, Joe Biden winning Michigan and Pennsylvania plus two congressional districts, the Nebraska second and the Maine second. And those things together, plus the states that uh, that Hillary Clinton won in 2016, would hand him the presidency. Talk about uh, especially that Nebraska second seat uh, that you believe could go to, to Joe Biden. Yeah, so if if uh, Biden were to win Michigan and Pennsylvania and win Nebraska 2nd Congressional District and the Maine 2nd uh, Congressional District, he would have exactly 270 electoral college votes and he would be elected president. And what's unique about these two states, I think you're going to see this happening around the rest of the country with uh, electoral right now. There are only two states that determine their electoral college votes 
by congressional district as well as the statewide voting. Mm-hmm. And so in, in the case of Nebraska, uh, the second congressional district is a suburban district. Uh, again, suburban areas are areas that are increasingly Democratic. Uh, this district uh, did vote for Obama in 2008. Uh, the current congressman in that district is a Republican uh, who won the, di- the seat by uh, 5% in 2018. Uh, so this is considered by independent analysts a uh, a toss-up seat. And this is the kind of seat that Democrats have increasingly been successful of around the country, these suburban districts that are full of higher educated voters that are increasingly moving to the Democrats. For instance, in 2018, Democrats picked up congressional seats in some of the reddest states in America, South Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. Uh, These were all suburban areas. So in Nebraska, too, it fits the profile of the kind of district that's increasingly voting Democratic. The main second congressional district is quite different. Uh, Maine, the the, uh, state flipped entirely for the Democrats in 2018. Democrats, as in Michigan, picked up the governor's uh, office. They also picked up the state senate. They, in addition, picked up Maine second congressional district is now uh, won by a Democrat this district, however, is the opposite of the demographics of Nebraska. It's a more difficult district because the voters there tend to be older or less educated, very high percentage of white voters. Uh, and this is a district that currently most independent analysts believe is leaning to Republicans, but it's certainly a winnable district for Biden. Uh, but, but as I said, these are very different districts in terms of the people who live there. Yeah, I, I think that's all so so fascinating, and it and it gets down to these really really granular levels of detail about uh, individual places and and the the dynamics that uh, that lead people to make the the kind of electoral cases that uh, that they do. Um, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones to participate in the conversation. Let's start with Mike in Chesterfield, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Hopefully everybody's uh, staying safe at the station. Yes, we are trying uh, very hard. All right, good. I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. I, I got to say, I'm actually, uh, I was going to be very calm, but I'm actually very infuriated with your, with your guest because, once again, people like me voting third party always get blamed for the result of elections instead <laughs> of bad two-party candidates. If the candidates in the past and the current ones, because the current ones are not any better. Two-party system is terrible. And this is always reflective of voter apathy. People like me, the majority of third-party voters, we would not vote, or we would just simply write in a, a castaway ballot simply because we do not want the poison. We do not want the typical Democrat or the typical Republican that constantly destroys the system. Yeah. We have no trust in the government because look at the failures of the past. Whether Mike, or not it's Trump or Biden, it is going to be a terrible president. Yeah, Mike, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to cut you off, but it, but we're going to run out of time in the segment, and I want to make sure that Doug Sosnick has a chance to answer you. And Mike, Mike is a pretty frequent caller here on the on the program, and he's somebody who's you know supported. 
uh, Bernie Sanders uh, in the in the primaries and is very disappointed that he didn't win. Uh, someone who, as he says, has voted third party in the in the past. Doug Sosnick, how do you how do you answer his criticism of your analysis that these are voters who um, who are spoils uh, of a, of a sort in the process? Well, I would say two things. First of all, I think there are a lot of people out there that feel like Mike. And my, my, my view is, is that sometime in the middle of this decade, the end of the decade, could be the next decade. But at some point, we're going to have, as I mentioned earlier, political reform. And one of the reforms is going to be that we're going to see third and fourth and fifth parties, parties like conservative parties and green parties and progressive parties. Because the American public has a very low opinion of both political parties. And the people who have the lowest opinion of the political parties are millennials. And they're now the largest voting bloc. So I think that, that what Mike's discussed about the parties is something that is felt throughout the country. And I think it's going to eventually bring change. The other point I'll make though is that third, fourth and fifth party voters, when they vote that way, it does impact elections. And because it, it if it's from the center right, it hurts Republicans, and the center left, it hurts Democrats. And so, 20% of Trump—I'm sorry, 20% of Sanders voters in the 2016 primary, 20% of them did not vote for Clinton in the general election. 11% voted for Trump, and the other 9% voted for third, fourth, and fifth parties. So, putting aside whatever you thought of the candidates, I don't think there's any question that in 2016 the vast majority of people who voted for third, fourth, or fifth parties, if they had voted for one of the two candidates, they would have voted for the Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, again, love that you listen to the program, and thanks very much for the really intelligent call and, and question. Let's go to Ed in Detroit really quickly. Ed? Yes, I'd like to hear Doug Sosnick say, what is his judgment as to the president's performance during the pandemic? How is that going to affect the outcome? In November. Yeah, great question. And uh, Doug Sosnick, does this change the electoral map, especially in places like Michigan? We have more coronavirus cases than almost any other state. There's been more deaths here. Does that put us further outside the possibility for President Trump? So I would give you three facts about Trump's popularity. One is his job approval is generally in the uh, low to mid-40s. He's never gotten over 50% of job approval since he's been president, which is extremely unusual. Secondly, he's always gotten higher marks on his handling of the economy than he has his job approval Mm -hmm. by around 10 points or so. And there was a poll uh, a couple weeks ago from Reuters, which had Trump had a 13-point advantage over Biden uh, uh, and who would do a better job of creating jobs uh, post-pandemic. Um, so he's always done better on the economy. And the third uh, stat I would give you is that he's gotten very low marks on his handling of the virus. Having said that, however, it really hasn't affected his polling. He didn't go up at the beginning of when the pandemic hit. Because normally when you have a national crisis, people rally around the president. That did not happen. But as he's gotten very low ratings on how he's handled the, the virus, his numbers haven't gone down outside of that range of the low to mid 40s. So I guess that where that leads you is, is that it really doesn't matter what Trump does. He can't get he can't build his support, uh, nor will he fall below his, his, his current numbers. Uh, people have sort of dug in about what they think of Trump, either positively or negatively, and they process every action 
that happens through that prism of what they how they're predisposed to think about Trump. It's very unusual. Okay, Doug Sosnick, uh, former White House political director for President Bill Clinton. It was really great to have you here with us for this conversation. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, up next, we are going to talk with NYU bioethicist Arthur Kaplan, who says government scientists ought to be resigning en masse over President Trump's disdain for science, as sort of expressed during the pandemic. And we're going to want to hear more from you. What do you think about the president's take on science as we battle the biggest public health scourge in a century in this country? Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today.